Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Vanita Agarwala. Vanita is a general partner with Andreessen Horowitz's BioFund. A self-described math nerd, Vanita likes her data. She spent a lot of time on the front lines of an explosion in biological data and efforts to analyze it to develop better therapeutics, diagnostics, and digital health applications. Before coming to A16Z, she worked at GV and Flatiron Health, among other stops. I first spoke with Vanita in 2019 when she, along with colleagues at Flatiron Health and Foundation Medicine, published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The paper focused on non-small cell lung cancer outcomes for patients based on their tumor genomic characteristics. At the time, I wrote in Timmerman Report, uh, quote, the idea of marrying the widening and deepening database of tumor genomic sequences at Foundation Medicine with the carefully curated and structurally scrubbed electronic health records of cancer patients handled by Flatiron Health was intriguing. The idea was to link the underlying biology to the downstream outcomes, connect the dots between genotype and phenotype, confirming what so many scientists and clinicians were surmising about. Give everyone who cares about evidence, physicians, payers, biopharma, regulators, a rich, growing, longitudinal learning database on which to make all kinds of well-informed decisions to enable personalized medicine. It was all easier said than done. You can read the full JAMA article and archived piece I wrote at TimbermanReport.com. Check out the show notes. In this episode, Vanita talks about her career journey to this moment of possibility in biotech and how to make more use of engineering and computation in biotech, along with some of the other challenges on her mind as she considers investments in early stage startups. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. 
Absai is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absai.com and absai.ai. Now, please join me and Vanita Agarwala on the long run. Vanita Agarwala, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke, for having me. So uh, before we get started, Vanita, I think we should share with the listeners that uh, you and I got to spend some quality time together recently on the uh, inaugural Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire back in September. And we did. Uh, 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 part of a team that raised, uh, I'm really proud to say, $700,000 for uh, community nonprofits focused on anti-poverty initiatives in the greater Boston area, uh, mobilizing the biotech community. Really a uh, a great experience. Uh, uh, I got to see you and and your uh, peers in a different setting uh, uh, than normal. I didn't really get to ask you much about your day job, <laughs> uh, but I but I saw I saw you display uh, some grit on the trail. Let's just say, and uh, I I appreciate it. I uh, so thank you for what you did. Phenomenal, phenomenal experience, and um, thank you for for bringing that group together and. Sometimes it's nice not to talk about your day job all the time, right? Um, it kind of gives uh, a different lens on what people care about and, and why they chose to to come on the Traverse in the first place and um, and how they functioned as a team. So it was actually, uh, you will not be surprised because you've had this experience from your prior Traverses, but many of us are in touch in all kinds of uh, contexts uh, as we speak. And so I think it's, it was just a phenomenal experience and a great way to get to know people um, with whom I'm, I'm sure I'll be working in many, in many different ways. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, but of course, like uh, one of the reasons I, I asked you to join and was excited about having you is because of the things that you do do in your day job. And we're going to talk <laughs> about here, here today. Um, and, and I thought just to kind of set the tone for the listeners real quick. I mean, there was uh, you and I first spoke a couple of years ago, uh, back when you were at Flatiron Health, you actually were at GV, uh, the, one of the venture investors in Flatiron, did electronic medical records, scrubbing them, cleaning them up, and making them very useful for cancer physicians. Um, and, and you did this work <laughs> to try to uh, uh, match up those records, if I'm saying this correctly, with uh, tumor genomics uh, information that was coming from Foundation Medicine, which was another GV portfolio company. And this was like, you're trying to put together this clinical cancer genomics database. And as I said, like linking the underlying biology to the downstream outcomes for patients, connecting the dots between genotype and phenotype, uh, a learning healthcare system uh, that's, that's longitudinal and grows and gets better. I mean, this is like the vision for personalized medicine. And uh, you, re yep. you really got your, your, your hands dirty in this. Uh, what was, um, just before we dive in totally, like what was that experience like for you? It was amazing. And, and in large part, um, I learned a lot because of the quality of people around me. Um, we had a great team at Flatiron that had learned so much over the, over the prior years about how exactly to clean clinical data, to make it useful, to make phenotype data useful. I had actually come to Flatiron, you know, out of the Broad Institute and had been used to genomic data actually. And, um, we had just gone through, a period of um, of five six years uh, in the genomics world, thinking about how to structure, clean, and organize genomic data. People had just come up with 
new file formats for the for the breadth of genomic data that was now um, possible to create and uh, curate and interpret and analyze. And so, you know, um, I was uh, very motivated to figure out a way for phenotype data to have some of those properties, recognizing that it might always be a little bit messier um, than genotype data. But that was kind of the fun of, of that effort, um, which, which um, you know, as you may know, is, is still live, still going. That clinical genomic database uh, maintained by Flatiron Health and Foundation Medicine um, remains a living database that grows over time and um, in which lots and lots of biopharma research groups and academic research groups are engaged on, on research from that real world data. But um, it was not well, easy <laughs> to bring. I, I know there was, there was a lot so, of heavy lifting and it was a, a lot fun, of heavy lifting. fun experience, especially working with, um, with Gaurav single at foundation medicine and, and his team. Well, I'll provide a link to the uh, paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association that summarized this work and, and a piece that I did for Timmerman Report on it uh, for those who want to dive in. But like without spoiling the whole thing, like uh, uh, we did learn a few things that, you know, patients with certain you know genotypes, like say EGFR mutations or um, ALK mutations tended to do have better outcomes, which, you know, one would expect. Uh, given the, the therapies that we have, but um, it isn't evenly distributed, is not a given. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot to, to be gained from, you know, taking American healthcare uh, this way, let's just say. <laughs> okay. But let, I, I think to, to help the, re, the listener understand like how you got there and, and the things that you're working on now, like, can you just rewind a little bit and tell us a little sure. bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? I'm from State College, Pennsylvania, home of Penn State. Um, so grew up. Um, you know, uh, in the middle of a university campus, effectively. Um, my, my mom went to med school at Penn State and, um, you know, ultimately did all of her clinical training in, uh, <clears throat> in and around that ecosystem. And so kind of grew up watching her become a physician. And my, my dad ran research computing at Penn State. Um, and so was kind of constantly tracking in some sense, which research groups and teams and departments needed more and more compute power, which was sort of an interesting lens on, on the research establishment as a whole and, and kind of watch that transition happen from, you know, theoretical physics, meteorology, slowly, slowly to, to biology, genomics. And, you know, it was kind of interesting when I went off to college, um, you know, he said, this is probably worth paying attention to. Something's going on. And um, and maybe the folks at Stanford are going to see the same thing that we've been seeing. And maybe that that trend is one is one you might be interested in. And well, um, Vanita, this, is, this <laughs> almost sounds like you were born to marry the fields of data science and medicine. <laughs> I, I, I do give my parents credit for for kind of piquing my interest in areas that turned out to be areas of, of genuine um, interest and an excitement for me, but uh, yeah, I, I might, who knows, I might not have been, you know, I, I did have some, some great experiences in the Penn State ecosystem. I, you know, I think I actually started in a, in a virology lab and found a great, great mentor who, um, well, wait, you know, so uh, are you talking, what yeah. years are you talking like high school, college? Yeah. 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 But right before college, um, I found my first research mentor who, worked with for several years, um, in a virology lab studying RSV, um, uh, you know, and who knew viral biology would become so top of mind um, 20 years later. But 
you know, kind of, uh, that was an interesting, I think when I reflect back on that, I actually think most about, um, about the quality as a mentor, um, of that, you know, of the, of, of, uh, you know, professor named Michael Tang at Penn state who just really kind of took the time to, to, to teach, to inspire, to, you know, help everybody in the lab design independent research experiments. And that was, that was interesting for me to see that, wow, this is kind of, you know, this is, this is a way in which fundamental uh, discovery can happen in a way that's tethered to a condition that affects a lot of, a lot of infants in our country that, you know, you may know now this year, actually in 2021, we've had more RSV cases at higher severity than in years past. Um, you know, people think potentially due to, uh, due to sort of immune um, shielding in the context of, of the COVID pandemic. But, you know, these problems are, there are lots of problems in biology that we tackle for decades. And, um, and the importance of settings and, and people who support exciting research kind of stuck with me. I then I did go to um, came to Stanford for for undergraduate. Um, now, now, Vanita, what was yeah. your plan in these years? Were you thinking that you'd become a scientist or physician scientist or someday the triple threat, you know, with admin <laughs> as well? I think initially, you know, I was sort of um, determined not to fall too far into my parents' <laughs> footprints and thought I would become an academic um, professor. At that at that moment in time, I would say I was most inspired by that PI who I had interacted with. And I thought that would be, that would be terrific to have an academic lab and create an environment um, that had features of what I had seen. So I was, I was primarily interested in pursuing, you know, PhD training and, and doing research. Um, and so that's what I kind of focused on when I came to Stanford, I did find almost immediately a wealth of opportunities that sort of sat right at the intersection of computation and biology. And that intrigued me because um, I'd sort of always been a a math nerd to some extent. And so that felt like, wow, this is something that, that, you know, I, I, I love the process of the science even more in this, in this particular intersection than I did in the context of a wet lab, a wet lab um, studying, studying viral disease. And so I, I find just the opera, it was sort of the, I think, you know, in some sense, the early 2000s were the beginning of, of a wave of research and also a wave of talent coming into computational biology. I mean, there were, um, Vijay Pandey was a good example, actually, one of my professors at Stanford, who now, of course, I have the opportunity to work with day in, day out at, at Andreessen Horowitz. But, um, you know, he was a physicist by background and there were lots of folks who had, who had those types of phenotypes and mathematicians and statisticians and who were all kind of eyeing biology at that time and looking for ways to bring their skill sets to the new data sets and the new types of inquiry that were playing out in our field. And so that, that sure. was, took quite a broad range. I, I remember I, I did a machine learning project with folks at Cold Spring Harbor studying transcription factor binding site motifs. And for the first time, we had some genome-wide data on sites in a mouse where, you know, sites in the mouse genome where CTCF bound and enough data to sort of train a, a basic ML model to detect what the properties of those sequences were and think about how to use that on a go-forward basis to query human CTCF function. Um, you know, I, I stumbled into a project um, in more of the biomedical engineering realm, um, trying to design a better PET scanner with higher resolution and 
in that space too. But, you know, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of electrical engineers and physicists who are thinking about making a semiconductor based PET scanner and in which, you know, image reconstruction techniques could be used to get millimeter versus centimeter, which is what we still have today on in PET scanners, um, you know, resolution. So this is all during your undergrad uh, experience, right? This is, yeah, this is. And, yeah, but it so was... you're getting exposed to all these different disciplines, and mm-hmm. it just so happens to be this time and um, when biology is just having this explosion of data becoming available. Like it's exactly. uh, there wasn't there wasn't a, there, there weren't these large data sets <laughs> prior. Yeah, some of it was and, data. And... Some of it was actually. I really do think that it, that a really interesting trend was different talent backgrounds too coming into the field and asking hey you know people were starting to write grants in other departments where one of the applications happened to be in biology or in you know the the pet scanner project that i just mentioned that was part of a national dod grant that was actually focused on um, nuclear imaging for for national security purposes, but a PI thought, hey, something about this infrastructure could be useful in medical imaging too. Why don't I write sort of a sub aim and a, and a, and pursue a side project almost with that funding? And so it was, you know, I think things like that were also starting to happen more, which was which was interesting to see. Well, it's it was really quite a time and place to be, I would imagine, for an undergrad that's just that's curious and you're able to explore mm-hmm. a lot in the candy store exactly. <laughs> with bi- biology exactly. and data, computation, imaging, all this stuff. Um, how did you like f- uh, kind of settle in on a, on a focus or when did that happen? Yeah. Well, so the first thing that I realized is, you know, <clears throat> the projects were fascinating and what always hooked me onto them was the ultimate human translation, right? I was sort of, for me, the PET scanner, you know, construction was most interesting because what if that meant we could detect human cancer recurrence or, um, you know, or, or growth earlier than we could. And that was, that was clearly the, the motivating factor that made me, you know, excited to work day in, day out on such a project. Same in the CTCF context. I was most interested, CTCF binding has been implicated in a variety of, you know, human diseases um, related to genetic imprinting and so on. And so I wanted to understand, is there a way where that knowledge could actually inform a therapeutic intervention? And that road seemed very long and very hard to connect, you know, those, those insights in the lab to translation. And so I started and there wasn't actually at that time, to some extent, this is a problem that you know still plagues plagues us in terms of speed of translation out of out of academia. But there wasn't exactly, you know, I didn't really see paths or I didn't really see the hustle to figure out, well, okay, what's the next step? What's the next obvious thing we do? Where do we where do we go? What in you know what industry partners do we talk to? That really. That was the part that I missed, actually. I did not get to see that as much. I sort of got to see the candy store, you know, beam in awe at it to contribute to it, add a couple of candies to the to the shelf, but not really, um, you know, get to take that home. But this is even at a, at a place like Stanford with its famously entrepreneurial culture. It, the industry and how it related to academia was still kind of mysterious to you. Yeah, I think it was mysterious. I think that's a good way to put it. It was mysterious. You know, I wasn't seeing everything. Maybe I didn't have all of the, I wasn't a front row seat to all the innovation coming out of the university. But I do think at that time, too, the breadth and um, 
and depth of industry academic collaborations were also different than they are now. And it was a little bit more of a sort of one-off when that really happened well. And more often it, it didn't it didn't happen. So I kind of actually started poking my head up to ask, well, what are the companies doing? How do they do it? Where does the capital come from? Where do they, how do they get financing to make things happen? So I actually poked my head up and, um, you know, went to actually healthcare investment banking of all places. And I thought, well, maybe on wall street, I'll learn a little bit about, you know, how things are finally, you know, get to be part of a, a later stage effort where, where there's commercial value and translational value attached to the research. And, and what does that look like? And, you know, um, actually that was a good, uh, primarily a, a great exposure to um, some of the, some of the ways in which healthcare services were starting to see innovation, which now impacts my work at Andreessen Horowitz in, in oh, other ways. Okay. But, but so it, you yeah, layered, you layered in this, <laughs> this industry knowledge uh, after, like before you went to the, the Broad and Harvard. To yeah. Get the, yeah. Before oh, okay, I, so. I went to, I went to a bank and and I learned a little bit about this thing called MA, right? This kind of major driver of innovation at large companies, which is to acquire strategically earlier companies and earlier assets. And that kind of got me thinking, okay, well, this is interesting. Um, you know, that, that seems to be a driver that there's a, there's a way in which large, you know, very well capitalized companies buy in innovation. And, and that kind of got me thinking too, okay, well, then how do you make that? How do you make something that they want to buy or that they want to help you bring to the market? I ended up thinking, well, you know, kind of fund flows at an investment bank were a little bit too removed from sort of the the candy store science to go back you, to you your didn't phrase. want to be a banker for life <laughs> I, I i did not um uh and so then i went to management consulting i thought well maybe that's kind of you know that's a more strategic take on how these businesses are built and and how you how you run them and manage them and and grow them and so i actually went to mckinsey and did management consulting primarily focused on healthcare and biotech and biopharma um clients um based out of the New York office, but spent time in our West Coast office as well and in, um, in Los Angeles and uh, <clears throat> also spent some time abroad in that context. Um, and that, that was also fascinating, but actually another theme there too was actually strategic M&A. And, uh, you know, many of the groups we worked with were actually working with a management consultancy to identify sources of earlier stage R&D. And of course, that was only a very limited view into, into the biopharma research enterprise. Of course, it's, it's, it's huge and amazing. And of course, over the years, I've come to appreciate how much basic science research happens within the, within the walls of large, of large pharma companies. But, you know, that, that was, that gave me, helped me connect a couple more dots with respect to what, um, you know, how internal research teams and organizations are structured, where their pain points are, how they think about patent cliffs, you know, how they think about, you know, juicing the pipeline up with earlier stage innovation, whether it's internal or external. I just, you know, I sort of learned a little bit of the language, a little bit of the lay of the land for how a larger stage um, Fortune 500 company looks. But again, still sort of felt, well, this still feels like I'm a little bit removed from, from those science problems that had seemed so interesting. And gosh, remember that wave of computation plus biology, I, you know, I might just miss it if I, if I stay entirely on the industry side at the moment. And so, so that's when I decided to go back to training um, and went back to pursue an MD PhD, 
um, uh, with hopefully with, you save some money up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you could go back not, to school and be a starving much, student. But actually, the MSTP program was, um, you know, really kind of uh, an amazing. It's an amazing construct that um, that we have that supports students through a very long phase of training. And so I'm eternally grateful to the to the NIH MSTP program. So you signed up, you go to Harvard Broad mm-hmm. Institute. Um, did you get uh, hooked up with David Altshuler right away or when did that happen? Yes, yeah, so I didn't know about the Broad actually initially or not much about it, at least when I signed up. Um, so I was actually still on that molecular imaging train, to be honest. I, I had in my head that last project I'd worked on, well, I was still sort of super interested in making PET scanning better and finding maybe new molecular imaging reagents and targeted reagents and what, you know, kind of, that's still a field that I think is a fascinating one. Um, uh, and so I'd actually, I sort of ended at first, I explored that area and, um, and, uh, but then kind of it's very quickly started learning about some of the new molecular data sets that were starting to emerge. Um, actually did my first rotation in, in, um, in, um, in epigenetics, um, in Brad Bernstein's lab. Um, and that was a phenomenal experience. Learned a lot about at that time, a new technology called ChipSeq and how you find epigenetic marks. And that kind of, you know, had some, had some, um, related vectors to the work I had done on CTCF binding, but now we could suddenly query so much more in human cell lines and embryonic stem cell lines. And that was, that was sort of eye-opening. And then it really, in a, in a sort of uh, random, uh, at a random lunch series um, for, for MSTP, MD, PhD students, I met David Altschuler, who was giving a talk at a lunch series where I bet I showed up because there was a free sandwich, to be honest. And, um, <laughs> you know, but, but I was captivated. I mean, what he said was just amazing. He said, look, if, if, you, if, if anybody here really wants to use computational skills to do the ultimate translational work by querying germline genetics, the genetics we're born with, the genetics that the arrow of time tells us, you know, is causal in different ways and and wants to interrogate this kind of amazing window we have into a natural experiment that that is playing out every day in the human population and points us to the cause of, of diseases, both rare and common. David's lab was especially interested in prosecuting the genetics of common disease, you know, you know, come join us. Cause we're at the beginning of this wave We're we're starting to be able to genotype patients, you know, all over their genome, looking for these signposts of, of, um, of causal disease biology. And I, th- I thought, wow, this is really interesting. The, the core, you know, query tools are going to be computational. Um, the data sets are going to be large. And if I'm thinking about a career at the intersection of medicine and science, wow, I, mean, I get to look at patients. I get to look at patient data all day. And so that actually really appealed to me. And um, that's quite a pitch. I signed up. It's, it was it's a great per- pitch. <laughs> it's it's pretty enticing. And, and now credit, you can begin to pitch. see the, the threads coming together. Um, a whole bunch of these topics that had been kind of <laughs> rattling around in your brain, not <laughs> exactly. entirely linked. They're starting to become linked. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so I spent the next several years um, in David's lab at the Broad Institute studying um, the genetics of, of common diseases, including diabetes. We had the opportunity in some contexts to collaborate actually with pharma companies who were also interested in, in understanding um, whether causal disease biology could, could create novel therapeutic hypotheses at different genomic loci across the genome. And every single year, our ability to query the genome kind of step changed. So when I started, we were primarily doing you know, 100K SNP chips, similar to what the Wellcome Trust initially published, published the first genome-wide association studies on. You know, then we moved to targeted sequencing of loci that came out of those studies. Then we moved to, a, you know, an exome-wide chip. Then we moved to a high-coverage genome-wide omni-chip. Then we moved to, um, you know, low-pass whole genome sequencing, high-coverage exome-wide sequencing, and ultimately high-coverage whole genome sequencing in, you know, in thousands of patients around the world with and without diabetes. And my work was actually around creating a theoretical framework in which to ingest all this data to be able to interpret it, to know kind of both what does a finding mean, what does that suggest for how many other such findings there might be, as well as what does the absence of a finding tell us about the underlying architecture of disease and, um, you know, contributed in a small way to, to the field's overall conclusion that in common disease genetics, really, we are up against a large number of variants of, of, of small effect, um, which actually from a therapeutic lens may be good because most patients with a common disease actually share quite a lot of, of biological and you know, genetic pathways that contribute to their, to their development of the disease. And, and maybe that means therapeutics are, are more broadly applicable in some sense, but um, well, really you, had you really got a time. front row seat here to seeing how quickly technology can develop like on a Moore's law kind of curve, as you described, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, throws off all this data. Someone needs to interpret it, uh, analyze it, put it in context, see how it connects to the patient. Ultimately, uh, you're getting a medical degree <laughs> as, yep. as well as this scientific training. Um, and um, were you thinking at this point that you, you would go back to industry all along? Was that kind of the idea? Uh, so not, not really, actually. I, I, um, I really enjoyed uh, clinical training um, and I would, you know, and struggled to figure out, well, how do I blend all these interests? How do I figure out a way um, to, to make it all come together in some sense? Um, I had kind of reached the conclusion that, you know, the industry experience I'd had prior to, um, to my time at the Broad, you know, kind of was in the back of my head. And I was thinking, well, you know, it was interesting to sort of re remind, you know, hey, remember that, you know, those large companies are looking for earlier stage innovation and where is that innovation coming from? And I hadn't quite gotten to taste you know, how all this data comes to bear on very early stage preclinical therapeutic development or, um, <clears throat> you know, the broader drug development process. And so one hypothesis that I had started to develop, you know, upon returning to clinical training was really what we talked about at the beginning here, which is, wow, the genomic data I've been working with for the last several years is so structured. It's beautiful. It's organized. It's, you know, everything about it is annotated, labeled, 
Um, <clears throat> but really the phenotype data was totally missing. I went back on the wards and I saw, well, every diabetes patient looks different. Some have ocular disease, some have renal disease, some have onset, you know, at 40, others have onset at, you know, 60 and some are obesity associated. Some really don't seem to be as obesity associated. Like what, where is all that data? And it was clear that we were not really organizing the phenotype data in nearly as much detail. You know, the some patients were, respond to drugs, others don't. So <clears throat> the records are a mess. I mean, handwritten notes, abbreviations. I mean, it's not structured. It's not uh, certainly structured. not to, to, to link up with uh, what you were used to. Exactly. And even if it was electronic, it wasn't structured. Um, and so I had sort of started to noodle on, well, is there, and I'd kind of at some point along the way here, I worked on a startup to, to figure out a way to, to link clean, you know, clinical phenotype data to the output of diagnostic tests, because I was also starting to see that, wow, there's this huge wave of genetic diagnostic tests coming. A lot of companies were cropping up that were saying, we'll sequence this part of your genome. We'll do this type of transcriptome profiling on you. We'll do, we'll, you know, measure these you know, 18 RNA transcripts in your blood will do. There was a lot of, there was a, the number of, of diagnostics companies started, um, you know, uh, at that time um, was actually, were actually large. And I was, I was, it was starting to become apparent that there was no way clinicians were actually going to be able to sift through that. And so I, I worked on a startup for some time to figure out, well, is there a way for us to be able to tell a clinician that, hey, on the last set of patients who looked like the one in front of you, who had such and such diagnostic test ordered, here were the outcomes, here were the results, here was the ways in which the diagnostic test did or did not inform decision-making. And I was starting to piece together this idea that there was some way in which we had to be learning from the deployment in the real world of diagnostic tests and drugs. And I, I was initially just kind of laser focused on the diagnostic lens, you know, just given coming out of, of a genetics lab, I think. Um, and then... Um, but then sort of started to think through more about, well, the hardest than what I ran into again and again was getting the clinical data. That was always the hard part. There was, you know, the diagnostic data, if you really wanted, you could get out of the EMR in a structured way or in, in some, you know, there were sort of hacks that were starting to emerge. You could partner with the diagnostics companies. Maybe there were ways to get that data, but every single time figuring out what actually happened to the patient seemed to be the hardest part. And so in that context, I stumbled upon Flatiron Health. I learned that Amy Abernethy had, had recently joined and was kind of spearheading a research effort to organize clinical data. And I thought, whoa, this is, this is what we need at some scale in some sense across all specialties. Um, and then of course I learned that, you know, um, we were about to launch a partnership with Foundation Medicine to actually link that data to genomic data. And it was one of those things that was like, whoa, this is um, almost too good to be true. Too, mu too much alignment here almost with what I really, really want to do in the world. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP-certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. 
Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman. And have you heard of Absci? Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from diseased tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absci is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absci.ai. You're recognizing here that yeah. as a as a physician and scientist, some of these problems are they're just they're so big. They're beyond what any one physician or scientist or lab can can take on. There's going to be a role for startups. Somebody like a Flatiron Health is mm-hmm. going to need to like dive in with a lot of risk capital and some time and some smart people to just beat away at this problem. And um and 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 you you got you decided to lean in. You got excited about this and thought, here's a place you could contribute. It was going to be startups and, and, and maybe investing in, in other related startups. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where when an opportunity is sort of staring you in the face, um, you know, sometimes you don't have to map out your whole life journey after that, but you just got to take the opportunity in front of you. And so great people at the, on the Flatiron team, um, great people on the foundation team and also an opportunity I thought to, you know, to be, to be around those people. And so, and learn from them. And so I jumped in, um, led a couple of product teams at Flatiron, including one that worked, you know, with foundation medicine to link up our data sets and create a real world living database, just as you described, um, earlier. And then, uh, and then ultimately sort of, uh, you know, along the way, got connected with the GV team, um, one of the investors in Flatiron Health, um, started doing biotech investing with the GV team at a time when um, when the kind of number and quality of really interesting platform therapeutics companies um, was kind of at an all-time high in some sense, those companies were also leveraging um, in many ways some of the same data and preclinical research, um, you know, uh, trends that um, that I'd gotten a chance to observe um, and, and learn a little bit about at the Broad. And so it was, it was, I sort of naturally fell into starting to look at how therapeutics companies could leverage a lot of the same um, themes that we've been talking about. And so had an opportunity to work with a number of, of really terrific therapeutics companies during my time at, um, at GV. 
You got to know um, Krishna Yeshwant. He's a previous guest on the podcast. Yeah, um, he's yeah. very well positioned as well uh, there in Kendall Square. Uh, invested in both Flatiron and Foundation Medicine. Both ended up getting acquired by Roche. Invested yep. in a whole bunch of other therapeutics companies. And 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 you and he, uh, I mean, had had some similar like interests. Uh, both being physician scientists, seeing patients, and and seeing some of the same gaps. Yeah. And he was a um, phenomenal not- mentor. It still is to me. Um, and so learned a lot from him. Um, and in particular, got a chance to, to explore therapeutics investing a little bit distinct from, you know, the health tech and, um, and real world data world, but actually, you know, kind of what does a world-class therapeutics team look like is, is a question I got to ask again and again, and, and learn a lot from the founders that, that we backed, um, when I was part of the GB team. Okay, so then you get this other move to come to, to Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, how did that come about, and, and what was the the pitch for you to join? Yeah, so after um, so after several years at GV, <clears throat> um, I had kind of uh, learned a little bit about venture investing, and and kind of realized that that it was a it was also a special opportunity that actually kind of scratched. A lot of um, a lot of the intellectual curiosity that I had in in many different domains, all sort of at the same time, um, and I thought, you know, I started thinking about, well, that that's a real privilege and a real opportunity to channel some of what I know and to um, to continue um, fueling and and gassing the engine of sort of early stage innovation. Um, just to go back to to the theme we chatted about all the way at the beginning, right? That there's that there is a need to figure out faster, more efficient, um, and scalable ways to translate insights out of out of uh, research labs into into companies that can bring those insights to patients. And so, the, the venture capital field um, stood out to me as as an exciting place to do that. And I particularly wanted to to go even earlier and be a part of, you know, seed stage, um, uh, investing, uh, on both the health, health tech and therapeutic side of the house. And, um, Andreessen Horowitz was, um, a couple years into really spinning up a very dedicated, uh, bio focused, uh, investment team effort set of operational teams that would support portfolio companies after we made investments and most importantly, a core team of of investors, from my standpoint, who would who, who would be really really fun to work with. I'd known VJ before. I think as as I mentioned, he was actually one of my professors at Stanford. <clears throat> um, I'd actually um, uh, worked as an intern in a, in a data science capacity at the company Julie Yu um, founded and ran for several years in Boston. Um, you know, at some point along the way, and um, so I kind of I had, I knew enough of the people uh, to to have a real appreciation for the team that was coming together, and uh, and this I was, was a promotion excited too about for the you, opportunity for yeah. you to become a partner at the A16Z Bio Fund, right? Absolutely, it was also an opportunity for me to grow um, and take more responsibility with respect to to companies and investments, um, and um, you know, and, and to be part of also the you know the buildup of of really an organization um, inside Andreessen Horowitz that's that's dedicated to early stage uh, bio investing and and company support. So that was yeah. definitely an exciting part of the opportunity. 
Well, and, and you move back West and you get you know, hooked <clears throat> it, reconnected with some of those networks and, and new networks as well. Uh, but yeah. still, you know, we still got one foot back in Boston or probably always will based on your experience <laughs> there. Um, in some okay, sense, so- yeah, we always sort of underestimate the role of our families, right? So in, in truth, part of our move back was um, my husband was actually based in, in the Bay Area and had been um, and had been, you know, uh, sort of working remotely, so to speak, pre-COVID in uh, in in the New York and East Coast offices of um, of his company, and so um, at some point, you know, as a family, we wanted to come to the Bay Area, and so that always that always plays a role. And in this case, I'm uh, I'm really grateful that it did. <laughs> good, good. Well, um, okay. So, what time? What year was this? This is 2019. Uh, we had moved out here a couple of years earlier um, <clears throat> because I also continued clinical work at Stanford, but. Um, I joined um, Andreessen Horowitz at the beginning of 2020, in January of 2020, right okay. before COVID. <laughs> and okay. I thought, oh my God, what a time to join and to take a new job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, making investments over Zoom. Um, it's not exactly what most people have in mind. Um, well, okay. So what have you done in the couple, almost two years now at Andreessen Horowitz? Like what how do you get like up to speed and like you know, form your your investment thesis? Um, so it was I, I must say it was like it was sort of this, you know, I thought, first of all, I thought, wow, um, maybe great entrepreneurs will stay in their in their in large company roles with benefits and and maybe entrepreneurship will kind of take a back seat during the pandemic. And to the credit of the human spirit, quite the opposite happened. So instead, you know, founders uh, started incubating companies on their way out of large company jobs. Founders started finding other co-founders all over the country and starting companies in a remote fashion in ways that never happened before. Founders started being able to hire talent um, in a way that, um, you know, kind of was unprecedented, even in the biotech sector. And so um, it really has been an absolute privilege to sort of be drinking from the fire hose here for the last two years, meeting just an enormous array of talented entrepreneurs across across biotech and health tech. And um, a big part of our, our thesis is really to, um, to support technical scientific founders um, right from the get-go when they're thinking about starting a company, um, when they may be two or three people. Or even less, um, and so a number of the investments I've made over the last two years are in very seed stage companies, just getting off the ground. Um, uh, in some cases, biotech companies that look a little bit more distributed than um, than one might have imagined was possible. Um, so it's a little bit of an experiment too, to see um, to see how that will play out. In lots of cases, of course, it's a more traditional setup where where everybody's um, co-located around a lab space and so on, but, um, you know, okay. Are most of these like stealthy, like, you know, you haven't issued a press release or they haven't raised, you know, that they're seed stage companies. Most of them are stealthy. A couple, um, a couple have been announced, um, and, um, they fall into, into a, into the general category, I would say, which you might've seen, um, Vijay and Jorge discuss in some of the earlier, um, you know, written work that Andreessen Horowitz has published, but sort of around the idea of how can we bring engineering and computation to bear on 
um, advances in the bio space. And that has, over time, I would say we've defined that fairly um, broadly in this, in this partially just because we see an opportunity in so many places. So that could mean that um, you have that there, there's an opportunity in front of you to engineer a better CRISPR enzyme, for example, and and you know uh, optimize its properties in a way that follows sort of engineering principles, where iteratively you can make a change, read out the impact, make another change, read out the impact, and kind of. Um, bring this engineering optimization to bear in lots of different parts of biology. So in some cases, we've backed companies developing entirely new modality, maybe a new type of, you know, um, you know, RNA for therapeutic delivery, maybe a new type of, of enzyme, maybe a new type of cell therapy where the, you discover the cocktail for that cell therapy via, uh, you know, a high throughput unbiased screen approach that allows you again then to, to iterate on the results of that screen. In some cases, it's a new type of, you know, a new MOA for a class of therapeutics that are going to prosecute a new biological pathway, but you have to use, you know, some type of um, high throughput assay to query the impact of perturbing that pathway in a way that nobody's done before, and then engineer again a new set of molecules to pursue <clears throat> activity against that pathway. In some cases, it's engineering and computation to optimize target um, discovery and to, to, to use new data sets to, to either nominate new targets or characterize a new class of targets um, that, that maybe have been underexploited for some reason in the past. And so, um, and then in other cases, I think, you know, as I mentioned with the CRISPR example, um, engineering to optimize the actual <clears throat> development of a therapeutic moiety. So our investment in Big Hat Bio is an example of that, where a really world-class machine learning team is pursuing design, optimization, development, manufacturability, um, and, you know, the ability to imbue biological um, properties onto biologic drugs um, like antibodies. So um, most, yes, are, <laughs> are unfortunately still uh, in the early primordial stages of being developed. So hopefully well, you'll, you'll hear more over time. I wouldn't call it unfortunately. I think that's where a lot of exciting things are happening. Just with some of those tools that you mentioned, the tools are such enablers mm -hmm. and they're throwing off different types of data, large amounts of data. There's people thinking about how to, you know, piece them together, whether it was through AI, machine learning, whatever. I mean, um, there, there's a lot of possibility in that early stage bio. Um, and uh, the ability to ask and answer questions just kind of blows my mind. We've seen it time and again with the pandemic. Um, but um, I want to come back a little bit to the other side of the equation, the, the healthcare stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, where, where it meets the patient, where, where you still have, you know, a lot of exposure. You, you recently wrote something where you said that the healthcare experience for cancer patients in the U.S. can be improved 10x. Um, what do you mean by that? How can... Um, how, how do you see that happening? So I think on the one hand, it's been amazing to see the development of so many new therapeutics um, in the oncology space. Um, and at the same time, I think anybody who's spent time on an inpatient oncology ward or, uh, or an outpatient clinic 
um, you just encounter far too many patients um, in the day-to-day of, of that job for whom you either have nothing left to offer in your arsenal or for whom, you know, current who happen to fall into some, in some cases, the 70% of patients who don't respond to a certain therapy. Um, and just sort of in just a number of, of contexts and situations that are, that are still heartbreaking and where you really kind of, um, you really feel helpless as a provider. And so there's kind of the, you know, still this incredibly large unmet need in the oncology patient community from a therapeutic perspective. And then it almost feels like throwing salt on a wound when you start to kind of dig into all the other experience um, sort of deficiencies that exist, the high out-of-pocket cost of care, the fact that it's so difficult to to navigate, even get to an oncologist in, in so many cases. I mean, I had lots of patients um, during my oncology training at Stanford who, you know, had been waiting months in the community to get connected to an oncologist, ultimately made their way into the healthcare system through the emergency room and ended up on an inpatient ward at Stanford in a way that was just heartbreaking. And so um, I, I sort of think about it in those two buckets. Yeah, both buckets, yeah. right? We need better therapies, but then, you know, we also need to figure out ways for patients to, to access those that we have and the care that we have in ways that don't bankrupt them along the way. You know, this is a little tangible aside. I don't know if you saw there was a piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago about it was a good news story about cancer patients uh, oftentimes no longer needing to get chemotherapy uh, because so many of the targeted therapies are so good now uh, that they can kind of forego a lot of the mm-hmm. classic, you know, dreaded side effects. But, you know, I, I read this article all the way to the end and there was this anecdote about a uh, older gentleman from Wisconsin who was diagnosed with lung cancer and his community oncologist uh, prescribed him classical chemotherapy. And he talked to his son, his son lived in Boston, had a contact at the Dana-Farber and said, you know what, why don't we get a second opinion? And uh, it turns out that this guy uh, flies out to Dana-Farber, I guess he had the means, and they find out that, well, gee, you should get uh, this drug called crizotinib. Now, the story didn't explain this, but you and I both live in this world where we know, like, wait a minute, that's Pfizer drug. That's for ALKIN uh, mutated cancer, lung cancer patients. It's a small subset, about 4% of patients. And anybody who has an ALK mutation, that should be caught right away. And you should not be prescribed chemotherapy. You should automatically get crizotinib and you shouldn't have to get on a plane to go to Boston to get it. And the, the only reason that it even happened and turned out to be like a story with a happy ending is because this guy had some means and some connections and, and some time and effort. And I mean, to me, that just kind of like epitomized some of the things like th- that disconnect, like what's, what's wrong. Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and, th- and those are some of the problems, you know, and trends we had a chance to quantify at population scale in the Flatiron Foundation Medicine work. We got to see how many times things like that happen, right? Where a patient whose foundation medicine actually show profiling showed an ALK mutation, you know, had actually previously been started on, on chemotherapy and so on. And so um, there's certainly kind of, you know, practice improvement and, and quality improvement initiatives that are still very real in oncology. Um, and then the problem has sort of been, well, how do you, what are the incentives um, that will change that? And what are the, what are the macro um, 
you know, threads of, of innovation and, and practice change, how, how do they get funded? How do they get paid for? How do they get implemented? And um, in that do you see vein, some of those, those incentives changing now in the pandemic, like the clinical trial apparatus, you know, telemedicine, decentralized trials, is some of that going to shake things up? I think some of it absolutely will. Absolutely. We've seen a lot more interest from both, um, you know, pharma companies, biotech companies, as well as the FDA to promote um, a, a higher degree of clinical trial inclusion and um, and remote patient monitoring in the context of a trial can certainly help with that. And, and I hope will will dramatically increase patient access to clinical trials. The other kind of observation that we're starting to to think more about and, and invested in a company um, called Time Care against this thesis is, is that, you know, patient figuring out a way to, to provide, um, you know, improvement to the patient experience of oncology care is really, really important. And in some sense, though, the way to fund it is by making an economic argument around, around that improvement to the payer. And so sort of the business model insight that, that we're experimenting with in the context of that company and starting to see in other parts of healthcare as well is, is that, hey, there's this kind of this payer who, yes, sometimes is kind of associated with, a, with a, a connotation around prior auth and approval of therapies and being a gatekeeper to access to certain therapies. But if you look sort of past that, in many ways, the payer is actually very incentive aligned with the with the patient and the provider because um, settings where the where you could have avoided that chemotherapy and all the side effects associated with it and the hospitalization that sometimes comes with it in the context of that patient you just mentioned, you know, is actually better for the patient and also saves our system money, and um, you know, it's sort of. Uh, it's, it's, but that, uh, that it's, seems to be inc incumbent on the innovator, right? I mean, because from the payer point of view, they they see the new thing coming down the pike and they think, oh, you know, somebody is selling some new thing and it's going to cost us more money. <laughs> and, and they don't really have the data to back it up to say that it will save us money in the long term. It's sort of a, you know, like a theoretical uh, idea. So do, do you see companies like figuring out ways to like demonstrate that? Uh and, yeah. And, so, so one is certainly EQRX in that, in that particular domain related to novel therapies. How can you make the argument to payers well in advance that first of all, what if you could access that novel therapy at a lower price point than you might otherwise be able to, or therapy, a therapy in a particular class? What if you could access a member of that class at, at lower cost? Um, and, and two also, um, you know, in most cases, um, inappropriate care or care that um, did not have to happen prior to appropriate care, as an as an example, right, is is going to be is going to have unnecessary cost associated with it. Um, and uh, and then there's all kinds of 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 sort. I, I hesitate to call them little, but sort of um, you know points in time in the journey of a cancer patient that actually do add up in a way that's not necessarily all related to therapeutic access and therapeutic um, prescription, but that could mean, you know, how a cancer patient's symptoms get triaged, whether they end up in the emergency room versus whether they have access to a great nurse who can help them triage that problem at home, whether they have access to, you know, participation in a clinical trial, whether they have 
um, the ability to have transportation to get to their uh, infusion that's scheduled at their cancer clinic, right? So it sort of comes down, you, you sort of have to march down Maslow's hierarchy in some sense and recognize that actually our system has gaps even at the at the very base rungs of that hierarchy and um, and making improvements there in the patient experience that ultimately serve patients better and and change their journey may also actually be quite aligned with with where our healthcare system needs to go um, to, to make care works, sustainable. Who works on some of these things? I, I can imagine some of these things being on the, you know, the hospitals, the providers. Mm-hmm. Not everything here that you describe sounds like a company. Uh, absolutely. And which is why we haven't had that many companies, I think, working in the oncology care management and care navigation realm. You know, um, providers have grown their you know, clinics, have grown their care teams in a variety of ways, but are sort of limited in terms of how much they can, um, how much, how many services they can provide um, that are financially tractable for them to do. And, you know, insurance companies and payers have created their own navigation organizations internally to sort of mitigate um, false starts, so to speak, in, in the cancer patient journey. And, but none of it has been particularly integrated. So the payer is not necessarily always talking to the provider. The provider is not necessarily connected with community resources like palliative care and, and diagnostic groups, all of whom play a role in the in the total cancer patient journey. And so um, that is part of the reason we got excited about, um, about backing time care, because they're trying to bring all those parties together and align them along the same incentive rails to say, you know, here's our North Star you know, the cancer patient has a, has a, you know, has a clear line of sight to what needs to be done and what needs to be done when and how, and, and if we can align everybody um, along those rails and connect the dots between the many fragmented parts of the cancer care ecosystem, you know, maybe everybody wins. um, And in particular, the patient wins. Um, So, so that's, that's an experiment that will play out over the next few years. And I'd love to keep you posted. So there's a, there's a lot of curation, let's call it, that <laughs> needs to mm-hmm. happen among these various players. Um, but one thing I know that you've been toying with lately is what you call this division of labor that's happening in the biotech world. Um, it, it, can you explain what you mean by that? Because like, it, it could sound like a little bit of the opposite <laughs> of what you just said. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. That's true. Um, so <clears throat> um, this is switching gears back into therapeutic development, but to some extent, it, it actually there are um, tenets of this that we see playing out in the in the digital health world too. But you know, our ability as a society to divide and specialize um, into different tasks and kind of have the right team for the right task. Um, has led to a lot of productivity in pretty much every sector of our society, right? Whether that be agriculture and we started, you know, somebody's going to get really good at doing this one thing and, um, and get credit for it in the marketplace all the way through to the technology sector and the internet industry and so on. And so in, um, in the world of therapeutic development for, um, for a long time, and to some extent, this is still a change that's playing out that, that I'm curious to observe and, and learn from over time, is that um, one company predominantly bore the risk 
of taking a drug all the way from conception through to through to development and commercialization. And yes, they could work with contract service organizations, research organizations, manufacturing organizations along the way as service providers. But often that risk was fairly monolithic. And um, sort of as a nod to, to, to recognizing that division of labor actually yields productivity gain, I think you've probably seen and you've reported on a lot of these partnerships, a, a wave of increased co-development that's happening in the biotech and biopharma sector. Um, I don't know if if um, if you'd agree with that kind of well, you know, high I level what, observation. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing is the classic fully integrated biopharmaceutical company model, the FIBCO, the vertically integrated drug uh-huh. discovery through development and commercialization company. And and like you say, yes, there was uh, efforts to you know. Uh, uh, contract out various things mm-hmm. that were not seen as like the super high value, the most high value functions you'd want to keep in house, but um, other things that maybe were a little more commodified. But mm-hmm. I think what's what's different now is like companies recognizing that actually a lot of this stuff is is not really so commodified. It does require exactly. some specific expertise from a fully dedicated uh, management team and and staff and exactly. and those people and those people make contributions too. And they need to have some skin in the game, some economics. So maybe like a contract manufacturer of AV vectors or whatever, <laughs> like exactly. we'll, par- we'll partner exactly. with them rather than kind of hire them out as a service provider. And importantly, and so- partner with them at risk in a way where they also see upside from the ultimate kind of prize of therapeutic you know product approval and so that could mean and 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 a recognition also that every one of those component parts whether it's the delivery vector for your gene therapy and the way that you know acuitus worked with you know, COVID vaccine developers, or whether it's um, manufacturing for a complex cell and gene therapy, or whether it's clinical development in the way that EQRX is doing efficiently at scale now with, in partnership with lots of different, um, you know, uh, companies actually doing, who are doing the drug discovery. And so in each of those cases, the partner company need not always look like a contract service provider, but may look like a full at-risk um, development partner who gets credit for the engineering optimization and deep domain expertise and capability that they've built in a particular, you know, specialized subset of the, you know, um, of the overall development process. And, and that's a trend are- that I think is really interesting because it will, it should, <laughs> by economic theory, lead to extraordinary productivity because suddenly not everybody has to build everything. And these are the kind of companies that venture capitalists like yourself can invest in and presumably get rewarded in sometime down, down the road. Um, so this exactly. is like- the, They also well, serve as very productive platforms that we think can contribute to the development of a large number of therapies, which makes them which make them- um, attractive investment opportunities as well. And the same is playing out a little bit in, in digital health and the health tech world, right? Where you're all seeing headlines for, well, here's a new virtual clinic for X and here's one for back pain and here's one for, you know, um, you know, allergy care and here's one for, for maternal care and so on. And so you're starting to see this happen and it's actually the same underlying trend, which is that the monolithic risk that used to be borne by your payer, you're a Cigna member or an Aetna member or whatever, that that monolithic risk, whatever happens to you and your health 
you know, the cost of it sort of all rolls up to this one payer. But now with the large sort of breadth of specialized um, uh, providers and and um, teams that are also willing to take on risk in the healthcare system and say, well, I'm going to offer this service, but I'm only going to get paid if it works to serve the overall, you know, the overall mandate to provide efficient value-based care. Now you start to have division of labor there too, where a payer could say, well, I'm going to share with, let's say, an oncology care management provider oncology risk. Um, and I'm going to, it's a high cost of care. It's a, it's a expensive patient population for us to manage. And we have to figure out a way to do it sustainably so we can keep doing it in the future. And um, maybe I go at risk with, with somebody who says, hey, I'm going to help cancer patients navigate this journey, access the right care at the right time, and ultimately save everybody um, save everybody, um, you know, economic value and, and ultimately provide provide higher value care. Um, and so the payer too, right, is able to sort of partner with these specialized entities um, and leverage division of labor um, in some well, sense at a macro scale. I hope that there's a way to figure this out because I think you and I can both see that uh, there's amazing stuff happening in the, the R&D world. Um, it's a... <laughs> There's a flourishing of innovation here that's happening and will continue for some time. Um, we're not doing very well uh, on the back end in terms of uh, you know paying for true outcomes-based achievements and value-based care. Uh, it's not being distributed uh, accessibly equally the way or the way it should. Um, and so we've we've got a lot of work to do on that end. Otherwise, we risk what. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the senior guys at the Gates Foundation like the, has a phrase that I've, I remember from years ago. He calls it the the innovation pile up, <laughs> where yeah. like mm-hmm. you, you come up with some great new thing for I don't know, like a malaria vaccine, for instance, uh, and it's fantastic. It works. It's safe and effective. But you know, it um, you can't get it <laughs> to the people who need it. And so, what good is that? <laughs> um, th- th- this is something that we just we haven't quite uh, cracked that nut yet on. Uh, on access and outcomes, but uh, I trust that people like you, who are smarter than me, will um, you know keep keep working on this for um, years to come, and and hopefully uh, make it so we do not have that innovation. Well, we need up. you to help us continue to connect the dots. Your um, your vantage point is a particularly interesting one, um, and and I, I genuinely believe your reporting helps people see examples. Um, you know, whether it be of, of partnerships, of new data sets, of new therapeutic models, of value-based pricing, you're reporting on all of these really important trends that I hope, um, you know, actually help accelerate this this wave of productivity that we all feel could be possible and, and hopefully is not bottlenecked. Hopefully people finish a podcast or an article and they, they it prompts them to think, think a little differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. We don't all have all the answers. None of us does. Um, anyway, Vanita Agarwala, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was a sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>